We are seeing around the world the central banks utilizing this pandemic as an excuse to seize or shift power economically and politically. There's talk and discussion of a wide range of topics, whether it involves how currencies operate, whether we have digital currencies, how reserves are operating, the ability of the Fed to buy up mortgages, the ability of the Fed to buy up corporate debt, the ability of the Fed to even buy corporate securities. And that's just the U.S. central bank. Other central banks have their own activities. There was a good theory developed some years ago uh, by a Japanese, uh, by an economist who was in Japan that led to a book and then a documentary series or documentary movie called The Princess of Yen. The predicate was that, in fact, China's central, the Japan, Bank of Japan, may have deliberately induced part of what has long has now become the long recession in Japan. The theory was that the central bank preferred power over short-term prosperity. And so even if they induced a bubble that would in turn induce a malaise in the Japanese economy, that was okay if as long as it would restructure political and economic power to make them, the Bank of Japan, an independent central bank with more power. We'll show some excerpts of that documentary later on in the show. But what the person who introduced it to me is someone who has been consistently accurate in a wide range of predictions and forecasts at providing actionable and accessible information in this complex economic world, particularly when it relates to banks. One of the theories of the Princess of Yen is that the bankers often relied on technical language that could confuse the general public so they had no idea what was really going on. One of the people that's best at breaking down that technical language and making it accessible to ordinary people with you don't have to have an economics degree or degree in banking, central banking lingo, in order to understand what's going on has been George Gammon. Uh, the George Gammon's uh, been on the show before, made various predictions that we talked about and discussed. His YouTube series continues to be one of the best. I watch it uh, regularly and provides information that's actionable and accessible for ordinary people and ordinary investors and uh, everyday folks who are just interested in what's really going on in our financial system. Uh, George, glad you could be with us. I'm happy to be here, Robert. Good to see you again, buddy. Absolutely. Uh, the So could you talk about there's like, there's different sort of overarching theories out there, but one I wanted to get into was I, I've been a little baffled by President Trump talking about wanting to go to negative interest rates. Uh, right. And given the history of negative interest rates being problematic for a wide range of reasons, which you go into in your videos, why do you think President, what do you think President Trump thinks he would benefit from negative interest rates? I don't know if he understands negative interest rates well enough to know what he's actually asking for. I think he's just looking at it from a standpoint of, hey, we've got all this debt, call it $25 trillion, the government, so why wouldn't we want negative interest rates? It just makes sense. Now, I think from the standpoint of the central banks, they could be looking at it from a different standpoint and potentially even, even using Trump as kind of one of their useful idiots. And it goes back to the book you're referring to, The Princess of the Yen by Richard Werner. And I'd suggest everybody checking out the book and the documentary. It's on YouTube. But his premise, to your earlier point, is that the central banks try to create a crisis because they know in crisis, that's the only time they can get the general population to change. So whether it's to bring on a group like the IMF, or the World Bank to give them more power or to consolidate power with the investment banks 
and the primary dealer banks around the Federal Reserve or the central bank of XYZ country, they create these massive bubbles, these debt bubbles, because they know once the bubble explodes, once it bursts, just like we had in 2008, then you bring on this crisis, which then can prompt the change in whichever direction the central, the central bank wants. Exactly. I mean, there's evidence of it. I mean, there's there was an argument about it in Greece, the thousand part, what happened in Greece. There's arguments about it happening in Japan, arguments about it happening in Singapore and Asia that led to the uh, bubble in 1998 and a discussion of it in just in general. It's a wide ranging discussion of the IMF. Can you talk about how the Federal Reserve may be and other central banks may be using the pandemic as a opportunity or crisis to shift power and resources? Sure. Well, first of all, we all know they've done QE infinity. So they started with QE one, two, three. Then they went to a QE four, which they didn't really admit to. So everyone in the FinTwit universe was calling it uh, not QE because Jerome Powell just wouldn't say, you know, we're printing all this money, but don't call it quantitative easing, whatever you do. So now they've come out and just said, okay, fine, we're explicitly doing quantitative easing and we're, we're, we'll do as much as necessary. So what this has done is this has created a tremendous amount of bank reserves in the system. To give you an, an idea, before the pandemic, the bank reserves in the system held at the Fed about $1.3 Now we're up to almost $3 trillion. So why does that matter? because currently the Fed is paying banks to hold reserves at the, with their accounts held at the Fed. But if they take interest rates negative, it will become an expense for those same banks. Well, then what they've recently done is they've dropped reserve requirements down to zero. So the banks don't have to hold any reserves against their loans or their balance sheet whatsoever. So why this matters is because if you look at an investment bank like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, usually their business model requires fewer reserves. So if the Fed is coming in doing quantitative easing infinity, taking the bank reserves up, and then if they were to take interest rates negative, this could create an additional burden on the retail banking sector. If it creates an additional burden on the retail banking sector, banking sector, a lot of them could go out of business, which would do what? Consolidate power around the primary dealer banks and the Federal Reserve. Wow. Well, the, uh, uh, so in that context or in that capacity then, so effectively, what the banks, what the Fed could be doing is putting in a sequence of policies that could further concentrate financial power in the country. Correct. Wow. So the and, and the other risk that there is already present, though they haven't exercised that there's just been sort of been an implied put, is their ability to buy up corporate securities, corporate debt, municipal debt, and the rest of it. If you combine it, what the could the Fed effectively use this to consolidate a wide range of economic and banking and financial power? across multiple sectors of the economy. Yes, because if they were to purchase assets, let's say they start purchasing stocks, that means that the equity of all of these companies in the United States is going onto the Fed's balance sheet, meaning they own it. So who knows where there's a limit? I doubt there is. 
but they're starting to buy corporate debt through ETFs. They're even buying high yield corporate debt, in other words, junk bonds. So I think the next step, if we have another downturn in the stock market due to a second wave of the coronavirus, whatever, it, whether it's, it's planned or not, <laughs> that's a whole other topic of discussion. But once uh, they have another crisis in the stock market, assuming they do, we go into recession slash depression, then they're going to come back in with guns blazing and I think the next step is they, they could very well buy stocks, in which case, again, those equities go onto the Fed's balance sheet. And then where's the limit as far as the bailouts? Well, what if they start bailing out states? What if they bail out the pension funds? And then pretty soon, you not only have the Fed consolidate, consolidating banking power because they're putting other banks out of business, like retail banks and community banks, but then you have them buying up all of these assets, dollar dollar denominated assets and just growing and growing, growing as far as their scope of power. And in that capacity, because you mentioned that there's a debate out there about whether or not this is a function of sort of economic incompetence, a sort of, yeah. you know, cultural mindset or whether it's corruption. I always say the worst combination. I don't mind dumb people. I don't mind criminals, but you combine the two. You don't get a good combination. To a certain degree, we have aspects of public policy that can reflect people who both may have malevolent intentions and may not be the most competent people in the world. But could you describe sort of what the different debate out there is in terms of predicting future conduct about what's motivating some of this behavior by central banks? For sure. So we outlined Professor Warner's opinion of central banks and what they could be doing. And to be very clear, uh, uh, Professor Warner hasn't outlined the scenario that I did about the quantitative easing and the bank reserves, but he has expressed a lot of concern about negative interest rates and banning cash, that that's a power move from the central bank. So he's definitely on record saying that. So that's the side of the argument that's the that's kind of the central banks are, are seeking power. This is a game plan that they're trying to execute. That's on one hand. On the other hand, you have people like uh, someone I really enjoy interviewing. His name is Jeff Snyder. He's absolutely brilliant. He knows the system inside and out like no one I've ever seen. But his opinion is that the Fed is just totally incompetent and they really don't have a mechanism for buying up assets. They like to say they do, and they like to lead us to believe that they have control over the short-term interest rates, long-term interest rates, and the stock market going up and down. But because there's such a massive bureaucracy and they're held to these Keynesian models, they really can't control what they say they can. So what happens is uh, Jerome Powell goes out on shows like 60 Minutes and talks up the market, says they're going to print limitless amounts of money. He basically says whatever he needs to, to make the market think as though there is a Fed put. And his, and his idea behind this is if the market thinks there's a Fed put, then they're going to start buying stocks, and that's going to create the wealth effect that I'm trying to achieve. In addition to that, it'll most likely, or hopefully, from the Fed standpoint, create inflation in the real economy. Why do they want inflation? Because it's a way to bail out the federal government. 
The only way out of their debt problem is through default or inflation. That's why the Fed has set all these inflation targets that don't make sense when you think about the cost of goods and services for the average Joe and Jane going up. Why on earth would that be a good thing? Because it goes back to creating inflation to bail out the federal government. So this is the kind of incompetent side of the point uh, of the coin where the argument is this is all just a psychological pretty much everything the fed does is to manipulate the psychology of the markets to do their bidding and w uh, if we were looking at evidence what evidence can we look for either at the risk of incompetence a theory of operation or that this is intentional malevolence or a particular strategy or scheme Sure. Well, on, on the side of incompetence, you can look at, uh, first and foremost, a chart of quantitative easing compared to interest rates on the 10-year. So the whole point of quantitative easing is to bring interest rates down. They, they, the Fed, thinks that if they can bring interest rates down in the real economy, that will somehow stimulate growth or inflation. But what you'll find, if you look at a chart, every time they've done quantitative easing in the past, QE1, 2, and 3, interest rates on the 10-year actually went up. They didn't go down. So it caused the opposite effect, but yet they, they continued to do it. And I could go down a, a laundry list of things the Fed has done where their intention is X, but the result is Y. So, and, so that would be an argument for the incompetence component. <laughs> and also, I'd add that it's pretty obvious that the U.S. economy is built on three things, asset bubbles, debt, and confidence. And I think the Fed knows this well. That goes to their, or that would explain why they're so focused on the psychology of the markets and the general public as a whole. Now, going over to the other side, as far as it's, it's more of a game plan that they're trying to consolidate power. If you go back to, well, you can go back to the 1920s. And if you, I'm sure you've watched the documentary, you've seen a lot of these collapses where they've tried to institute change. And it happened, um, I'd have to go back to my, my, my videos and my notes, but it's happened several times in the past. And every single time you've got a, an entity that comes in that tries to manipulate the entire economic environment, such as the 1990s and the Asian crisis, you had the IMF come and bail them out, but they stipulated uh, all of these rules that allowed some of the big investment banks like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, to come in and buy assets in the, the whole of Asia that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to buy. So there, there's a, you go back and forth, and I think there's great arguments on both sides. And I think to a certain degree, there's an argument that, in fact, that we'll, we'll talk about with George when we come back after the break, that there's both is at play. 
that to a certain degree you have people who do not have the best intentions of ordinary people who have their using crises as moments of opportunity but don't always have the best skill sets or intellectual capability or full understanding of real world economy to actually achieve what they're out to achieve at least in ways that benefit the ordinary person so i'll ask about george about that when we come back right after the break uh, as we discuss whether or not the fed and central banks is making your life even more difficult than necessary by using this pandemic as a pretext for a power grab. Welcome back to American Countdown. We're here with George Gammon. You follow his YouTube channel, George Gammon, spelled like mammon. So the uh, sort of, almost. But the uh, you can follow him there. You can follow him on Twitter. You can also follow the podcast, Rebel Capitalist, has great information that is both actionable and accessible to ordinary people. You don't have to be an economist or an investor even to understand it and use it for your personal benefit, particularly in this unique time of pandemic economics. Uh, George, in that respect, what can people sort of do to prepare for some of these things that are coming down the pipeline to better protect themselves uh, in terms of what the bank, the central banks may be up to? Well, first and foremost, education. You, you've got to understand what's going on. And I know people don't like to do that because they kind of like to ignore it and they don't want to put any work into it. But just understand what the central banks do, the Federal Reserve, and try to look at both sides that we were just talking about. So you form an opinion as to whether you think this might be a game plan or this might be due to incompetence. So you can look down the road three, year, five, three years, five years, 10 years, and decide what decisions you can make right now for your financial future and the future of your family that yourself 10, 15 years down the road will thank you for, <laughs> right? So I think first and foremost, you got to own some gold. You got to own physical gold and then or, or silver. But I, I kind of like gold as an insurance policy, especially if we're going into a wave of inflation, knowing that that's what the central banks want to pull off to reduce the debt load of the federal government. You kind of put yourself in their corner, so to speak. And then for the average person, if they have a home and they've got uh, a loan against it, just make sure you've got a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Because basically, if you have a fixed rate, and assuming that we do get some inflation that exceeds the rate of your uh, rate of interest, then that's a transfer of wealth from the bank to you because you're paying back the loan with cheaper dollars. So I think those two things are the easiest things that the average person could do. Maybe own some Bitcoin, but I see that more as a speculation instead of an insurance policy. Sort of a speculative hedge. Uh, do you yeah. think things are going to get crazier or uh, return to normal in terms of Fed policy and central bank policy in the near short term? Oh, crazier. Yeah, that's the easiest question you'll ask me all night. <laughs> because you, you got to say, going back to normal, before 2008, the Fed's balance sheet was at $800 billion. Now it's almost $7 trillion. Plus, what is a normal interest rate? Well, maybe 5 6% when you look at the United States historically. So think about where we are right now at the zero bound, so 0% interest rates, and how long we've had to keep interest rates artificially low, and what happened when the Fed tried to do quantitative tightening, mean, meaning they tried to reduce the size of their balance sheet, or what happened when they tried to raise interest rates. 
They could only get to a certain level where the market and the economy just waved the white flag, said we cannot take it anymore. And that was with the balance sheet at $4 trillion. How much worse is it going to be now or how much harder is it for the Fed to go back to quote unquote normal now that the problem is 10 times worse? Their balance sheet has almost doubled and they've doubled down on taking interest rates back to zero. Wow. So the uh, any hope that there will be a degree of political resistance or political self-education that will rein in the centralized power of central banks? No. Because I think it's good. They're going. Okay. So if you think through politically what's most likely to happen if we get another downturn in the stock market and we're going into a recession, I mean, that's just that's just a given. It's just a matter of is the recovery going to be this V-shaped recovery, an L-shaped recovery or how it's going to look. So assuming that we have what 15 percent unemployment and regardless of who gets in the office or who is in the office after the election, it's very likely that they continue the unemployment benefits. They continue with a uh, UBI, universal basic income, helicopter money, MMT, whatever you want to call it. It's going to be getting more money into the back pocket of the average person. Now, initially, this could be a good thing. Long term, as you know, it'll most likely make things worse through inflation of food prices and uh, your insurance, taxes, uh, medical, college tuition, just the things that the average people buy. But going back to why this could be a problem long term is if, if the government goes down the path of UBI and they try to create this type of inflation, then what's going to happen is that the Fed won't be allowed to raise interest rates. They won't be able to normalize. And it makes things much, much worse in the long term. And that's what this is all about, Robert. It's about kicking the can down the road. And whether it's the, the government, the Fed, that's been their MO, and that's what's got us to this problem in the first place. And what could be the consequences for the ordinary person if the Fed is able to concentrate its economic power? In other words, if it's able to take out some of the smaller bank operators, the retail and community banks, able to effectively have more influence over mortgage securities and corporate bonds and even corporate securities or municipal bonds even, well, what could that look like for the ordinary person politically and economically? Well, they, whoever has power, would have more control over who gets the loans. So, and, and as you know, money is lent into existence. That's how we, we have the M2 money supply, the broad money supply. That's how it, it, it's, it either expands or it contracts by debt and by loans being put into, or more loans out there in the real economy or by loans being paid off. So if the central banks or whomever has control over who is getting the lending, then you have this Cantillian effect when whoever is kind of the, the, the crony capitalism, whoever has the is closest to the banks or the Fed, they're the ones that are going to be getting the money and they're the ones that are going to be doing phenomenally well while everyone else suffers. So and, and also they can control not only who is getting the money, but where it's being spent. So if you've got a great business idea, you go to your local community bank now, they know you by first name, they know that you're going to be a good entrepreneur, then they're willing to extend credit to you. But if you've got to go to JP Morgan 
or Goldman Sachs to get that loan, what's the chances of the average Joe on the street getting the loan that they're tr to start the subway or the gas station or the dry cleaner or any of these other services that we need. It's very, very low because it just doesn't make a lot of sense for these big banks to do it because it, it takes the same time and energy for them to do a, a $10 billion loan as a $10 million loan. And where are they going to make the most money? Where are they going to make the most fees? So it ends up being sort of like what happened with the Paycheck Protection Program and sort of like a Soviet-style economy where the politically connected and the politically protected get a disproportionate share of the resources developed by any particular society or economy. And that that sort of just worsens and intensifies. And one of the things I thought uh, sort of as a last question, the princes of yen, I thought what it really went to was I was trying to explain to people why don't Democratic politicians recognize that certain of their shutdown policies will backfire over time? Why doesn't the central bank realize the risks of what they're doing and they're up to? And I pointed out there's something inherent in central planning that leads people to prefer power, even if it comes at the expense, potentially, of public prosperity. And that it seemed to be to be one of the uh, better arguments in favor of the thesis of the princess of the yen was that they seem to care far more about whether the central bankers whether they were independent in control than even if they, the economic consequences that came from the bubble that they created. Any thoughts on that? For sure. It goes back to Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman had a thesis that one of the main reasons we don't want centralized power is because eventually the person you don't want to have that power will. Because it attracts the people that are morally bankrupt. <laughs> for lack of a better word, and it and it attracts people who don't have a problem asserting control and power over other people. So if you have someone who is willing to do what it takes to be a good politician, there, if you think about what that means from a moral standpoint and an ethical standpoint, it's probably someone we don't want having power over the country or or policy of any sort. So that so going back to the Fed and the, the federal government, the more power they have, this is the bottom line, the more power they have, the more power we give them, the more corrupt the people in charge will be. Exactly. It reminds me of an experiment in high school at a governor's school program where they actually used a fake currency to create it. But the whole mindset was there's going to be four of us in this room who are going to have the power over the other 96 of us. And that was the sort of uh, Milgram experiment of high school, if you will. But I remember thinking, what's the likelihood that those four people are the right people to have the power over the rest of us? Who's going to really seek it? Who's going to want it? Who's going to end up getting it and obtaining it? And it doesn't end up being the best people. So the uh, you can get more insights like that from George's uh, Rebel Capitalist podcast. Go to YouTube at George Gammon. Follow him on Twitter at George Gammon. Thanks, George, again for being with us. Thanks for having me, Robert. Absolutely.